gospel is Christ, Christ in his death and his resurrection, and the gospel then saves and empowers us. WSBC. My name is Phil. My pleasure to bring you the Word of God today, this Easter morning, where we remember and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. This morning, we return to the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is addressing a young church, which he helped establish, that is struggling with holding fast to their faith. And the main struggle of the Corinthian church stemmed from issues of pride. Pride which resulted in disunity, disunity over issues of speech, knowledge, marriage, sin, and even the authority of different apostles, including questioning Paul's authority. But before we dive straight back into what's happening at the Church of Corinth, I do have a question for us to consider. So I want you guys to think about, have you ever been in a situation where a topic that's being discussed, it could be any topic, but there's a topic that's being discussed and you felt unqualified to speak about that topic. And let me clarify, when I mean that you felt unqualified to speak, it wasn't because you lacked the knowledge or the intellect or the experience. So for example, an example of what I'm not talking about, you know, if, if your kid's building a Pokemon deck and you're trying to talk to them about Pokemon, but the only Pokemon you know is Pikachu, right? That is not what I'm talking about. That's where you don't have the intellect, you don't have the knowledge to speak about it, right? This is not what I'm referring to. What I mean when I say you felt unqualified to speak about a topic is because you've failed previously, you've previously failed so miserably at the topic that's being discussed that you do not dare to utter a single word. You feel you have no right to speak, or in Chinese you might say, right? So for example, you feel like you don't have the right to tell someone you need to exercise more because you haven't been in the gym for the past year, or two years, or three years, or four, right? Or you might feel like you, it's not your place to tell someone that they need to develop better sleeping habits when you spent the past night up late binging your TV shows or swaddling, right? This is what I mean by you feel inadequate. You're struggling with feelings of unworthiness to talk about a certain area because you've fallen short or failed at that task, right? Whether it's issues of self-discipline, personal improvement, or in relationship with others, you feel like you failed in an area and you are unqualified to speak on it, right? So in our text today, we will see how Paul wrestles and uses his failures of his past when dealing with the Corinthian church. Our text today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 11. You can follow along in your Bibles or find it in page 11 of the bulletin. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 11, Paul says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. This is the word of the Lord. Our main idea today is the gospel is Christ, his death and resurrection, and Christ, the gospel who saves and empowers us. Sorry, let me repeat that again. The main idea today is the gospel is Christ, Christ in his death and his resurrection, and the gospel then saves and empowers us. One last time, the gospel is Christ, Christ in his death and resurrection, and the gospel then saves and empowers us. So two points for today, just two, though I will be a little bit long-winded in the first. The first point is, what is the gospel? We'll look at verses 1 through 8. And the second point, the gospel saves and empowers us, verses 9 to 11. So as we dive into the first point, what is the gospel? We're going to be looking at what the gospel is based on six observations of Paul's text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we'll be looking at six observations of what is the gospel according to Paul's text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So in chapter 15, Paul starts off with a reminder to the church, right? And then in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So our first observation, so first out of six, the gospel is Christ-centered. The gospel is Christ-centered. Paul, in one of the most succinct and direct gospel presentations, makes it exceptionally clear that the gospel is Christ. Christ who died for our sins, was buried, and raised on the third day. This is the gospel. We do not call ourselves Christians because we believe in a philosophical or cultural system of beliefs. We call ourselves Christians because we believe and put our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what separates us from any other religions where the focus is not on a singular person. The focus is on rules or systematic guidelines for living life and for self-improvement. So, for example, if you went to a Buddhist and you said, if Siddhartha Gautama never existed, would you still be a Buddhist? And they would most likely respond, who is that? Right? What are you talking about? But they would later tell you that, of course, Buddhism isn't contingent on believing Buddha. What they follow is a system of philosophical beliefs, of philosophical beliefs of how they wish to live their lives. 
Similarly, if you went to a Hindu and you said, would you still be Hindu if the deity of Ganesh never existed? They would most likely respond with you, of course. You don't like Ganesh? Go down the street. There's another temple of Krishna. In fact, you don't like Krishna? We have millions of gods that you can believe in. Belief in Hinduism isn't contingent on an individual figure. Its focus is on the system of karma, of self-realization and self-improvement so that you can move up into the next class, into the next social standing after you reincarnate. Now, imagine if you went up to Luke after the service and asked him, Luke, would you still believe in Christianity if Jesus never existed? Now, Luke would probably look at you a little bit amused, and you'd probably say, would you like to know more about Jesus? Let me tell you about it. But the question is one that doesn't make sense. There is no gospel without Jesus. There is no gospel without Jesus because Jesus is the gospel. The gospel, according to John, meaning the book of John, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus later says in the same book, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We put our faith, it is not faith about Jesus that saves. No, it is Jesus himself that saves us. All right, so let me repeat that again. It is not faith about Jesus that saves. It is Jesus Christ that saves. When you believe in the gospel, you're not following a religious system or philosophical beliefs. You are following Jesus Christ. Right? So that is our first observation. The gospel is Christ-centered. And this leads to our second observation. The gospel is historical. The gospel is historical. In verses 5 through 8, Paul states, Jesus appears to Paul, to Peter, sorry, to Cephas Peter, then to 12, then to 500, then James, and all the apostles, then back to Paul. Now, we don't know why Paul writes it specifically in this order. Right? Most commentary on it with any sort of conclusion is really just speculation. In fact, we know he's not trying to be literal since the first person Jesus appeared to was not Peter, but was actually Mary. And that also when he appeared to the 12, there actually wasn't 12 because Judas wasn't there and also Thomas was not there as well. So we don't know exactly, we also don't know who exactly he's referring to when he says he appeared to the 500, but he does make the point to say that most of them are alive. No, the point Paul is making to the Corinthians when he says this is that it is irrefutable that Jesus both died on the cross and after three days was resurrected as witnessed by hundreds of people, mostly his followers and the apostles. We know that in verse 12 to 17 of this very chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that there are some in the church of Corinth who doubt that Jesus actually resurrected, which Paul makes clear that he did resurrect, and it is absolutely critical to our beliefs that these instances are factual and historical, that his resurrection is factual and historical. In verse 17, Paul says, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Don Carson takes that verse and he puts it this way. The validation of our faith is the truthfulness of faith's object, specifically Christ's 
resurrection. If Jesus Christ did not resurrect, then he did not conquer death, he did not conquer Satan, and he did not fulfill God's covenant and will. If there are any people here, or you may know of other people, that are not willing to believe in Jesus because they doubt the historical validity that Jesus came back to life, Paul's statement makes it extremely clear that both Jesus' death and resurrection are historical. The gospel is historical. There are so many witnesses to the account and their testimony that the resurrection is not a myth or a fairy tale, but a historical truth, right, that it must have happened. Now, we use the exact same historical standard to determine if Confucius or Qin Shi Huang existed, right? Where, how do we know thousands of years ago this history actually existed? Because there were multiple eyewitness accounts of their life that was recorded and then passed down. So the same standard for all history is the same standard that's used in the Bible of whether it's historical or not. Charles Spurgeon writes, I suppose, brethren, that we may persons arise who will doubt whether there was ever such a man as Julius Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte. And when they do, when all reliable history is flung to the winds, then, but not till then, may we begin to question whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For this historical fact is attested by more witnesses than almost any other fact that stands on record in history, whether sacred or profane. If you or someone you know is wrestling with accepting Jesus because they aren't sure if his death or resurrection actually happened, it actually occurred, let them know that the gospel is historical. This particular doubt should not be a point of contention that makes them question whether to follow Jesus or not. Sure, they can, they can question whether they want to believe in Jesus and his teachings, but there is no question to whether Jesus' death and resurrection are historical. All right, the gospel is historical. Our third observation, <clears throat> the gospel is biblical. The gospel is biblical. Paul says in verses 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul does not actually detail the specific scriptures that he's referring to. But we know that the importance of this point, but we know the importance of this point because he repeats it. He repeats it to the Corinthians to let them know that Jesus did not just appear out of thin air. He didn't just come out of nowhere, but that this gospel was planned from all eternity and described prophetically in the scriptures. It was in our scriptures reading in this morning from Isaiah 53. Additionally, Peter, in his first preaching of the gospel, um, after receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, references Psalm 16, Joel 2. So what that means is from the beginning... God's plan to save us from his wrath was to send his son Jesus to take the sin of the world on the cross so that those who have faith in him can have life through Christ. Right? The gospel is biblical. John, again, in chapter 1 writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The gospel is biblical. Our fourth observation from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. In verse 3, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The statement is quite significant. For Paul, as he usually does, he, he usually does not rank the importance of issues of faith. Right? The closest we can see in, in all of his epistles and all of his letters is in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, when he says the greatest of the spiritual gifts of faith, hope, and love is love. Now, this is one of the rare instances where Paul is ranking something to be more important. Why? Well, because Paul wants the Corinthians to know, and we should also understand, that the issue of first importance is to know the gospel. The issue of first importance is to know the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. Oftentimes when it comes to our faith, we, we tend to elevate the periphery issues that are still part of the faith, but they are periphery issues. So for example, we sometimes make the gospel or our faith out to be about the purpose of our life, right? What is my purpose in life? What is God's will for me in this life? Knowing God has given me purpose. I didn't know what my purpose was before, right? Or maybe you still don't feel like you have a clear purpose and you're trying to seek it. What is God's will for me, right? We sometimes make our faith about loving and caring for others, right? About social justice, helping the poor, helping the needy, helping the underprivileged, or we make our faith about how we're supposed to live our life. We're supposed to live simply. We make our faith about prosperity, about security. We make our faith about politics, right? Now, these, now uh, I want to make it clear. These issues are not bad, and they're not wrong. There are issues that we should consider, right? It is good to think about God's will for your life or caring for various communities. But we have to make sure not to elevate these issues above the core issue of the gospel. That when we deserve nothing but God's wrath, God sent his son to die for our sins so that through him we could have redemption of our sins. We should not be like the Corinthian church, elevating various issues, making them more important than the core of the gospel. And that is Jesus Christ. So our fifth, next we move on to our fifth observation. Our fifth observation, that the gospel requires authentic, persevering faith. The gospel requires authentic, persevering faith. So in his reminder to the church, in verse 1, Paul writes, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. Right? Paul previously preached the gospel to the Corinthian church, and, the, and they believed at that time, and still believe. And then Paul then reminds them to hold fast to the word I preach to you, right? So after his little introduction, he then tells them, hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. What makes it clear, what we can observe from this, is faith in Christ is not determined at a singular moment, right? Faith in Christ is not determined 
at a singular moment. True faith in, in Jesus is only determined at the end of the race. True faith in Jesus is only determined at the end of the race. Right? The moment that you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior is the starting point of your faith. That's not the end. That's the starting point of your faith. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, let me repeat that again, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister. Right? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Similarly, the relationship between Jesus and the church is often compared to a bridegroom and the bride. We don't determine if a marriage is successful at the wedding, right? We don't determine if a marriage is successful at the wedding, no matter how amazing the wedding was, no matter how extravagant or the most important factor, no matter how good the food was, right? A successful marriage is not determined at the wedding, right? What's, what determines a success of a marriage is if the married couple, if they were able to uphold their wedding vows throughout the weeks, the months, the years, and the decades until the point of death do us part. Right? That's what determines the, the, the success of a marriage. And it also is what determines the success if you held fast to your faith in Jesus. It's not the moment you accepted and you believed. It's at the moment of whether when you die or when Jesus comes again and you are judged, did you hold fast to Christ? All right? So that is our fifth observation. The gospel requires authentic, persevering faith. Our sixth observation of point one, our sixth observation, the gospel needs to be preached. The gospel needs to be preached. Paul says very purposely in verse one and two of this gospel, of the gospel I preach to you, hold fast to the word I preach to you. And then in verse 11, Paul finishes with saying, whether it was I or they, so we preach to you, and so you believed. This really is a beautiful phrase, right? So whether it was I, me, Paul, or they, the other apostles, we preach to you, and so you believed. Why is this beautiful? Because God, it's the simple fact that God does not need us to enact his will. God does not need us to enact his will. He is the king of kings, lord of lords. With just words, he was able to create the entire universe and all that is in it. This is the God that we follow. This is the God that we believe. He does not need us. He does not need us. Right? He does not need us to bring about salvation. He could use any means that he wishes to bring about salvation to come. But for whatever reason, God's chosen way of bringing people to Jesus Christ is through the preaching of the gospel. Right? God's chosen way of bringing people to Christ is God's preaching of the gospel. Romans 10, 14 to 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, right? God does not need us to bring salvation to all, but he has chosen us and he has allowed us to partner with him to bring people to Jesus Christ. That is our sixth observation. The gospel needs preaching. It needs to be preached. All right, so in point one, just to summarize real quick, my wife told me I should summarize. Not everyone's going to remember. Right? Our six observations. Observation one, the gospel is Christ-centered. Observation two, the gospel is historical. Observation three, the gospel is biblical. Observation four, the gospel is of first importance. Observation five, the gospel requires persevering authentic faith. And observation six, the gospel needs to be preached. Okay, so we move on to our second point. Verses 9 to 11, the gospel saves and empowers us. Point two, the gospel saves and empowers us. Now this scripture is, is really interesting, right? This, this entire section of 1 Corinthians 15 is really interesting because if you break it down, what is essentially happening is Paul is in the first eight verses essentially sharing the gospel, right? He's sharing the gospel. And then the last three verses, verses 9 to 11, right? He's sharing his testimony, He's sharing his testimony, right? In verse 8 and 9, in sharing his testimony, he characterizes himself as an apostle untimely born, least of the apostles, and even unworthy to be called an apostle. Now, when Paul says this, he's not being facetious. He's not being sarcastic. He's not trying to set a trap for the Corinthians to feel bad about questioning his authority and then springing on them, no, I'm actually a, a great apostle, right? Paul's Paul is being genuine when he says this. Paul genuinely believes because of his past transgressions, he is not worthy to be called an apostle. So Paul is echoing earlier what he said to the Corinthians in chapter 2, when he says, When I came to you, I, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise words, wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul writes something similar in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and de deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Right? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Now, to us, when we think of Paul and how much Paul has done for the gospel, it would seem ridiculous to think that Paul is unworthy of becoming an apostle. He is arguably the greatest missionary in the New Testament, right? In fact, if, I, if, you, if you were to try to think about now who were the original 12 apostles, probably many of you in this room were not, would not be able to name the 12 apostles. I'll, I'll give you a minute to actually think about it, right? 
No, but for sure, when you hear the name of Paul, you know who Paul is and you know what Paul has done. But if you really consider where Paul came from, really consider where Paul came from to where he ended up, it is nothing short of a miracle. It is nothing short of a miracle. Let's track that journey a bit, right? So Paul was a Roman Pharisee. He was in the, and, and he was, who was in the front line of persecuting those who follow Jesus. He truly was the tip of the spear, right? In Acts 8, it says, Saul approved of his, meaning Stephen, the first martyr for Christ, he approved of his execution. And there alone on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and with great lamentations, and made great lamentations over him. But Saul, Paul, was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. In Acts 9, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who were belonging to the way, men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, now you know something really bad is happening when they explicitly state the women, right? You know something really bad is happening when, you, when, they ex, when the Bible explicitly states the women, right? He went... Uh, Paul himself further gives testimony to Agrippa in Acts 26. He says, when, the follow, when they, meaning the followers of Christ, were put to death... I, Paul, cast my vote against them. I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Right? I think hearing this, we can start to, we can probably start to understand why Paul would say he's unworthy to be called an apostle. Right? we can start to understand why Paul would say he's unworthy to be called an apostle. But herein lies the amazing redeeming of power of grace. Right? Herein lies the amazing redeeming power of grace. We have Paul, where he started off. Right? And in verse 10, Paul says to the Corinthians, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Have you ever wondered, so we know where Paul comes from, with, look at his conversion, right? Have you ever wondered what Paul must have been thinking, right? He's actually on the way to persecute more Christians, and then Jesus blinds him, and he encounters Jesus. And he's blinded for three days on the road to Damascus, where he's to meet Ananias. Have you ever wondered what Paul must have been thinking when Jesus met him? on the road to Damascus, right? What he was thinking when he was blinded, could not see, had to be led by hand, by, by his helpers. He had, he, and he literally encountered the person for which he was persecuting people for. What must have been going through his head? Right? What must have been going through his mind? How must he have been feeling? So one thing that Paul shows us through his testimony, one thing that Paul shows us through his testimony is that no one is beyond saving. 
No one is beyond saving. No matter what you've done previously, there is no sin that you've previously committed or may currently be committing that is too horrific to be saved by Christ's redeeming blood. No matter how horrible or irredeemable you feel your sins are, Christ died for them. Christ died for them. He atoned for them on the cross when he shed his own blood. All right? But Paul does not just stop there. Right? He does not just stop with being saved by God's grace. He continues in verse 10, right? and he says, His grace toward me was not in vain. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, meaning uh, the apostles. I worked harder than any of them. Paul is saying that for Jesus, redeeming grace, right, not to be wasted on him, for Jesus' redeeming grace not to be wasted on him, he needed to put it to work, right? It would have been wasted if he didn't do anything with the grace. He needed to labor for Jesus because of the grace that he received, right? He's essentially saying here that grace would be in vain if we did nothing with that grace, right? If we understood and accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, all right, and then we just said, all right, I'm good, right? We, we, we see our sins, right? We repent of our sins, we accept Jesus, and then we just said, I'm good for the rest of my, my life, right? I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, life's great. Right? And we did nothing with that grace, right? That would be wasted. That would be wasted, according to Paul. Paul understood, and he, what he's trying to get the Corinthians to understand is that true grace empowers us to do God's work. True grace empowers us to do God's work. Grace requires a response. Grace from Christ requires a response. It requires action. It requires action. It would have been in vain if Jesus came to Paul and he said, cool, Jesus, I'll stop persecuting your followers now, now that I know that you're real. And that was it. And, we don't, and he did nothing. He didn't write his letters. He never went on his missionary journeys. Right? His grace would have been, Christ, Jesus' grace would have been in vain. No. Instead, Paul understood and he felt the weight of God's grace. And he was so humbled and so contrite in being saved by his grace that Paul was willing to say, God, use me as you will. Paul was willing to say, God, use me as you will. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. All right, Paul writes in Philippians 2, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I, I like how John, write, John Piper writes it in Future Grace. The mark of a believer in Christ is does he live in recognition that he has been saved by grace? The mark of a believer in Christ is does he live in recognition that he has been saved by grace? Because of grace, Paul was willing to face those that he had been persecuting. Literally, and you can go back and read it in Acts, literally right after he's converted, he then has to face those that he has been persecuting. And then not only that, those he was persecuting with now turned around and were persecuting Paul. But he was willing to face that because he'd been saved by grace. Because of grace, he was willing to be shipwrecked, to be stoned, to be beaten, and to be put under arrest. Because of grace, he was willing to do whatever God willed him to do. This is why he says, he concludes by reiterating, that it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Right? It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Right? It's the grace of God allows him to labor for God. Right? <clears throat> so he concludes with, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So Paul makes it clear that none of our works contribute anything in covering sins. Right? When we labor and we work for God, we're not covering sins. Righteousness only comes from justification through Jesus Christ. But grace also does not replace work or our effort or labor. Right? Meaning when we have grace, doesn't, we, don't, we still have to keep laboring. Right? But that labor does not cover our sins. Right? Grace produces and empowers work for God. Grace produces and empowers work for God. Galatians 2.20 Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and then gave himself for me. The grace that empowered Paul to admonish and encourage the Corinthian church is the same grace that now redeems us and empowers us. In my introduction, I talked about how we may feel unworthy to share certain aspects of ourselves, just like Paul felt he was unworthy to be called an apostle. For those of you who felt that way, right? Who are those of you who have felt that way before? Some of you have felt unworthy in certain aspects. I'm unworthy to be called a believer. I'm unworthy to disciple, to teach others, or even to call out other people's sins because I know where I've come from, right? Or I'm unworthy to lead or to serve because of my past. I want to be, I want to be the first to say that I really understand where you're coming from. All right, if you've ever felt that because of, the, of whatever my past is, I'm unworthy to serve God in whatever way, I completely understand where you're coming from. You see, a few years after Lena and I were married, I was in unrepentant sin. I was in an adulterous relationship, and I did not repent. At that time, I was unrepentant of that relationship. Right? We ended up being separated for many years, and I'll be the first to tell you that I thought it was all over. My marriage is over. 
My life was over. My faith was also over. Never in my wildest imaginations would I have believed that Lena would then forgive me, that we would be reconciled, and that we would have two beautiful boys. So like Paul, I can say to you, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. The only thing that could have saved and redeemed me and my marriage is the grace of Christ Jesus. Right? I'll also be the first to admit that there was a time where I felt like there's no way I could ever even lead a Bible study again. There's no way I could teach at church. I am unworthy. Who am I to lead others in the Bible? I am unworthy. Who would ever want to listen to me, this horrible sinner? But I'm able and willing to stand here and share with you today because it completely resonates with me when Paul says, it was not I, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Christ did not redeem me in vain. My past sins and my transgressions are not in vain. I do not try to hide them or pretend that they never happened or being too ashamed to ever bring them up. Instead, I labor even harder to try to provide encouragement to others struggling with sin or needing guidance on how to work through issues on their marriage. And it is only through Christ's saving grace that empowers me that I can do this. It is nothing of myself, nothing of Lena, nothing of anyone here. It's Christ and Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, just like how Paul reminds the Corinthian church, right, that they need to let go of their pride, they need to let go of their sins, right? Paul reminds the Corinthian church, well, we have to ask ourselves the same question. Can we let go of our pride because of Christ's saving grace? Can we let go of any disagreements or hurts with our coworkers, our bosses, because of his saving grace? Can we forgive our parents, grandparents, siblings, cousins, for how they may have slighted us, how they may have insulted us, because we have received his saving grace? Can we pardon any anger, any bitterness we may feel towards our spouse, towards our friends, towards our, a brother or sister in Christ, because we are covered with his saving grace? WSBC, can we as a church be unified by the gospel? That Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And through the gospel, through which we were saved, can we allow grace to now empower us and labor for our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an indescribable blessing, joy, that you would choose to redeem horrible sinners, that you would choose to send your only Son, who lived blameless sinless, and you allow your will, and your will would allow him to take upon all the world's sin, to atone for all the world's sin, so that we would have a path to righteousness, Father. This is a, truly an indescribable joy, Lord. Father, I ask that may our grace 
not be in vain, Father. May we not lament in our past sins. May we not allow sin to continue to have a grasp on us currently, Lord. But may we repent of them, may we give them to you, and may your grace empower us to labor for you, to love one another, to be unified with one another, Lord. We thank you, Father. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.